I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. Our humble mission, folks, is to change the way the world looks at aging. And we do that by simply turning our cameras and pointing our microphones in the direction of men and women who are leading by example. And, Mark, today is a great day because we have plenty of them for you, starting with the ageless and now famous thoroughbred trainer who nearly won the triple crown also one of the most amazing centenarians we've ever met and mark we met a bunch of them yeah we really have also today one of the greatest country music singers of all time a former olympic gold medalist turned author and an amazing woman with no medical background who cured herself of two rare life-threatening genetic disorders after mapping her own genetic code actually did that. All that today on Growing Boulder. You know, all of our guests are fascinating people, but our next guest captured the attention of the world when at the age of 70, 70 became the oldest trainer in history to win the Kentucky Derby. He followed that up by becoming the oldest trainer in history to win the Preakness. Almost became the oldest trainer to win the Triple Crown. You know, over the years, his horses have won more than 2,100 races and $38 million in prize money, but he had never trained a horse that ran in the Derby or the Preakness until he won them both with California Chrome. Let's welcome the amazing Art Sherman. Hey, Art, how are you? Uh, good morning. We're thrilled to have you on this show. Congratulations, first of all, on winning both the Derby and the Preakness. And I read somewhere where you said winning them would not change you in any way, but it's hard to believe that it hasn't changed your life at least a little. What's it been like for you the last few months? Taking a lot of pictures with a lot of different people. <laughs> no, everybody wants to take the picture, you know what I mean? And it has been great. I've done a lot of seminars. And, you know, just trying to help the thoroughbred racing industry. And, you know, I'm all for that. I'm kind of trying to get people interested in in the thoroughbred racing, you know, and and, uh, it's a plus. You know, everybody's always been excited to have Art Sherman around. I mean, you're a great guy. Everybody knows you. You make friends real easily. But in the back of their minds, they all said, yeah, but at 77 especially, the guy's winning days are probably over. And look what you <laughs> did. Look what you did. I mean, it's it's possible for somebody in their late 70s to still soar to success? Well, I'll tell you. Good horses make good trainers. And uh, I want to tell you something. Uh, California Chrome has changed my life quite a bit. You know what I mean? You wait for a lot of years. You know, I've won grade ones and grade twos with different horses over the years, but never had a horse like him. You know what I mean? It's just how they come about, I have no idea. It's just one great long shot that comes up once in a while, and uh, the story behind it is unbelievable. So I'm just thanked by Lucky Stars that I was there to uh, appreciate all that has happened to us. You know, the story at every level is indeed unbelievable. And for the few out there who may not understand it, a a quick recap, if we can. Uh, I mean, this is an industry that is driven by billionaires and and genetics. And, you know, part of Chrome's appeal uh, is that a couple of guys named Steve Coburn and and Perry Martin paid $8,000 for a poor performing mayor. Insiders called them dumbasses when they did that, so they named their entire stable uh, the Dumbass Stables. And then they paid, you know, what, $2,300 for a stud fee for another unknown horse. And the result of that is California Chrome, who, who Art, by all accounts, was unimpressive himself until you, until you started training him. What happened? What did you do for that horse? Well, I... I... It was just, you know, the basic training. I didn't do anything extra special. I just let him develop, you know, as a two-year-old, he was green. He come to me, and we put blinkers on him and got him more focused, you know what I mean? And then when he turned to be a three-year-old, he matured so much more, and and it was a, it was a great chance, you know, to be able to 
go forward with them, you know. You know, Art, you're such an interesting guy. You've been in this industry for a long time, and you've seen it all. And and especially when California Chrome had that chance to become the first horse since affirmed in 1978 to win the Triple Crown, you know, it just didn't happen for you in the Belmont. And I heard you talking about how the Triple Crown really isn't set up to be a fair competition. Can you talk a little bit about why you feel that way? Well, you know... When you have to run in three major stakes in five weeks, different tracks and and, and different horses, it, it is you have to have a really tough horse. You know, Chrome adapted really well, and you know the Belmont he had a little bit of issues. They stepped on his foot, and it, and it was bleeding pretty good. You know what I mean? And the rest of the races we had good clean trips, and the Belmont we didn't. You know, so. You know, racing luck plays a big part, and uh, it doesn't take, you know, the horse only got beat a length and a half for all of it to, to win the Triple Crown, you know what I mean? I, I I always look back and say, well, you know, with a little bit of racing luck, you know, we could have been a, one of the few that has made the Triple Crown run, you know. But I'm really happy the way the horse performed, you know, the we had a great time. We met a lot of nice people back east. And he's given me quite a thrill, you know. And he won my first million-dollar race, which was the Santa Anita Derby. And, of course, the Kentucky Derby was $2 million. And the other race, the Preakness, was a million five. So, you know what I mean? When you're running for all these years with the cheaper kind of horses, it's really, uh, you know, it's, overwhelming to you to come up with a horse like him. Folks, we're talking to Art Sherman, who really was was the toast of the sports world for for much of this past year. Uh, He took an unknown horse, California Chrome, as a two-year-old turned him into, you know, one of the greatest stories in the history of thoroughbred racing. And, and Art, it really is one of those deals where everybody, whether you were a racing fan or not, became a fan of California Chrome. You know, the story of Seabiscuit comes to mind. Uh, in, in your seven decades in the business, uh, have you seen another story like California Chrome? Is Seabiscuit as close as it comes? Well, I would think so. You know, the way that the game is played now, you know, with all the millions of dollars that people put in and, and they buy their way into the Derby with, you know, when you really think of it, like a guy like Fletcher had 46 horses nominated for the Kentucky Derby. Why, God, that's unheard of, you know, and, he, and uh, yet he's only won it once and the rest of the other horses that he has, you know, if that's how tough I'm trying to say that the race is to, to try and win, you know, and uh, it is probably one of the toughest races that I've ever witnessed to, to win. Of course, when I was a kid, we won it with Swap, but uh, he was an extra special horse, too. And talk about how tough California Chrome's trainer is. I'm talking about a 77-year-old guy in art. When people see you, age melts away. They don't think of age. How do you approach that? How do you deal with the prejudices people have against older people? And how? And what do you think this means now for people who are your age and trying to make up their mark in the world? Well, you know, after you get to be my age, you're a little bit more laid back. You know, you've seen about everything you can. And thoroughbred racing, there is always some new horizons that you never think that you see, but they're there. And uh, it keeps you young. You know, you, you, you'll notice that a lot of the thoroughbred trainers live into their 80s and 90s. I have friends, you know, that, that were old-timers. And, God, I, I used to just love their stories and, and just watch them and, and uh, used to be my favorite, when I, you know, I rode for 23 years, that I, I used to have a lot of old-timers that I rode for. And uh, the game keeps you young and gives you something to look forward to. You never know what that young horse is going to be like. And it, it's like getting up in the morning and saying, wow, maybe I'll have another California Chrome. You know, you, you try and get lucky, you know. Hey, quick question from somebody who knows nothing about the game. Uh, 
Now that Chrome has won two legs of the Triple Crown, does that ensure his value as a stud moving forward? Does that trump what has was thought to be a mediocre you know, lineage? Will he get what, he's, what he deserves because of what he's won? Well, I would have to think so. He's got the bankroll now, too, behind his name. You know, he won $3.5 million already, and, and, uh, and his future is still, you know, ahead of him. You know, I, I'm looking forward to seeing him run as a four-year-old, and I think you'll see a, one of his best handicapped horses in the country. He'll be around like Wise Dan and Pallet's Malice and the horses that are running right now, you know, with keeping them sound and healthy, and I think, you know, the future looks very good. Mark brought up a, a good point. When Hollywood gets around to making the California Chrome story, well, which actor do you think is going to play Art Sherman? <laughs> I, already, I already got him booked. Joe Pesci. Oh, <laughs> man, that would be perfect. <laughs> hey, hey, Art, you, we're, we're just about winding down here. Do you have a takeaway for us? Is there something that, man, you've seen so much in your 77 years. What? What can we learn from you about about how life works and the power of persistence and never giving up? Well, you know, you just got to be thankful that you're in good health. You know, that's my number one priority. And and your family, I've got two sons that are both trainers, you know what I mean? And and I've just became a great-grandfather, and that was kind of fun. And, you know, as years go back and you look at, you know, when you first started and where you're at now, you know, it's kind of overwhelming for me. You know, I'm I'm just thankful that I can do what I have and I'm in good health, you know, and and who knows how many years you got left, but I've had a good life and, you know, I just look forward of, of continuing and doing what I love to do, you know. And we look forward to watching it. Folks, he is the great Art Sherman, one of the greatest horse trainers alive, who at 77 years old stunned the world, leading California Chrome to two legs of the Triple Crown. Art, we will continue to look for you on the track, and we'll uh, look for Joe Pesci playing you in the movie. Thanks, buddy. Coming up, he may be the most amazing centenarian we've ever met, and that is saying something. He's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit GrowingBoulder.com TV for program listings and where to watch. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. One hundred and one-year-old Roselio Munez has a quality of life that is enviable at just about any age. He's active, engaged, and enjoys life at one hundred and one more than ever. Roselio Munez starts every day exactly the same. In the morning, I have a shake. And uh, the shake is made of uh, walnuts, soy milk, and fruits. I put in my shake about six or eight fruits every day. I put some liquid and have it in the morning. And that gives me strength all the day. Roselio became a vegetarian when he was in his 60s. That was 40 years ago. Roselio Munez is a centenarian. People that uh, are vegetarian live from seven to 10 years longer than the rest of the population. This is scientific. So I am one of the privileged. It's not just his diet that's key to his longevity. Roselio rides his stationary bike three to six miles every day, and he likes to take brisk walks. Especially amazing considering he had a complete knee replacement at the age of 92. There's not a lot of doctors that will replace a joint in a 92-year-old man. He said, no, you can have it. 
at your age, it is impossible. But Dr. Hugh Morris was impressed with Roselio, his attitude, and his overall fitness level. He is extremely healthy for 92 and intended to continue being healthy. And after a thorough evaluation and determining he was an excellent candidate for a knee replacement, he requested and had that procedure done. Three months later, Roselio went to Hawaii for vacation, climbed a volcano's lava flow, and sent a picture to Dr. Morris. And what, did the doc, what does the doctor say? I mean, he was amazed about that. No one is more amazed at Roselio than his daughter, Millie. She's learned many things from her father, including forgiveness. When Millie was eight, Roselio was nearly killed by a drunk driver in an automobile accident. He recuperated and went to court where the driver was found guilty and fined. When the man couldn't pay the fine, he was sentenced to jail. Uh, my dad looked at the side and saw his wife. She was pregnant and he felt very sad for her. So he said, Judge, can I pay his a fee? And the judge said, do you know this man? And he said, no, but I believe he needs to be home with his wife and his child. The man never contacted Roselio, never said thank you. But my father forgave him and he was at peace. Roselio attends church every week and he reads the Bible every day. This is my favorite thing to do. Read and read and read and read and read. He comes to me and he says, I just read this article. It was so good. And it's just like the most wonderful thing he's ever read. And he'll do that every day. <laughs> and that's not all he does every day. He likes to go into the computer and he has a list for me in the afternoons when I come home. Guess what I found out today? There is a planet that is made just of diamond. <laughs> I mean, every day he will tell me new things that I don't know about. Do you wish you could still drive? I could drive. You still drive? Yep. You still have a license? <laughs> I have my license. It's obvious that Roselio loves life. He also loves his family. I love them so much, and they love me too. So we are a, a very uh, together. And he loves his country. Do you have a favorite state? United States. <laughs> you like them all? They're ball. <laughs> he has a deep appreciation for many of the things that most of us take for granted. The fresh grass and the, uh, the drops of uh, rain, uh, like a diamond. This is so beautiful to contemplate what the Lord has done in this world. Roselio Munez is too busy enjoying life to worry about death. This doesn't belong to me. <laughs> I want to live as long as the Lord wants me to be here because I am ready to die at any time. He asks me, you are over. So I, don't, I am not afraid of the, of the death. Until then, he's not counting the days, he's appreciating them, one at a time. Every day is one day for me. And for me, today is the last day, not tomorrow, because tomorrow is in the future. So I live according to this day. And tomorrow, when I open my eyes, I try to live again the next day. And that's it. And if you live that way, you don't have to worry for nothing in the world. One of the most incredible people we have met at any age. And Mark, what a blessing that at 101, he is grateful, he is vibrant, he's smart and curious and appreciates every single day he has. Yeah, I think all we really need, Bill, is, is the example of what's possible because there really is nothing unique about Roselio. I mean, he's got a great family. I mean, make the list of things that lead to longevity, a great family, social engagement, an active mind, uh, a good diet, uh, lack of stress. He's got it all, but it's something we can all aspire to. And, you know, we see so many people over 100 that just sit in wheelchairs and can barely open their eyes. This guy drives himself. He, he has fun every day. We have one thing, Mark, that Roselio didn't have, and that's him as a role model to prove that, yes, it is possible. 
Well, folks, you don't need us to tell you that alcohol in excess in any tobacco is not good for you, but you do need Dr. Robert Masson to tell you. He is one of the world's foremost neurosurgeons specializing in the treatment of degenerative, post-traumatic, and athletic spinal injuries. His patients include some of the top amateur and professional athletes in the entire world because he gets them back in the game better than they were before. Yeah, he's an incredible motivator, and he's an expert on healthy lifestyle and extreme recovery. And today he's speaking about the wide-ranging effects of alcohol and tobacco. People don't understand that while tobacco is unhealthy for lung, nobody has really focused on the systemic effect of tobacco to wound healing, to blood vessel and oxygen delivery. Every injury a person has, if they're smoking simultaneously, that injury will heal slower and less completely. Every joint, every, every spinal disc that gets slightly injured has less blood flow, less oxygen going to that area to repair it, to rejuvenate it. So what you see is you see people who smoke age prematurely and you see it in their skin, you see it in their spine, you see it in their joints. And so it, it compounds um, the aging process and it literally accelerates the aging process and, and what people don't realize is alcohol has a negative effect on nutrients a negative effect on exercise and it encourages cortisol release internally which increases fat buildup and increases a tendency to gain the kind of weight we don't want to gain and it, it reduces the nutrients that we absorb in our in our digestive system so ultimately even if we are doing the right things we don't build strength the way we want to build strength Coming up, two-time country music vocalist of the year voted one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world in 1983. Can you guess who it is? That's next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Bill Schaefer and Mark Middleton here. Mark, a little-known fact. Somebody heard that song and immediately coined the phrase, smooth as butter. That's, that's where it comes from, that song. Did you know Is that, that? true? I didn't know I that. I just made that up. But <laughs> I, man, I like it. Be close. Of course, folks, you're listening to Growing Boulder, and our next guest recorded that song, one of the greatest hits in the history of country music. She did it in one take back in 1977. Uh, she went on to record 20 number one country hits, during the 70s and 80s with six albums certified gold. She became the first female artist in country music history to have an album go platinum. Yeah, and you know, Bill, that is one of those rare songs that sounds as good oh, today. Man. You know, it's timeless as it did back then. Now, she's won a Grammy, two Country Vocalist of the Year Award. She was the first female country artist to host her own TV special, the first country artist to tour China, and on and on. And her career is now the subject of an exhibit at the Country Music Hall of Fame that showcases her award her fashion, her personal memorabilia, and more. It's called Crystal Gale, When I Dream. And, of course, she is the one and only Crystal Gale. Hey, Crystal, how are you? Hello, I'm doing great. Man, we're doing great to have you here. Thank you so much. And what a career you've had. And kudos to the Country Music Hall of Fame for putting together this show. Before we talk about the show, can we talk just a little bit about your career? Yes. When you broke in, you were known mostly as Loretta's little sister because Loretta Lynn is, in fact, your sister, 19 years older. Was that a was that a good thing for you, or did you wish you were, you know, kind of trying to do it on your own at first? Hey, I mean, uh, I was and still am. Um, I, I love my sister, and I was very proud. So when they said I'm Loretta Lynn's sister, I mean, <laughs> made me feel good. Yeah, of course, it opened doors, but it also 
closed a lot of doors. Uh, but I wouldn't want it any other way. You know, well, one of the stories I think I heard about you, but I'd love to hear from you yourself because somehow you know how these things on the Internet goes, that you were born Brenda Gale Webb, and uh, that name wasn't going to cut it, huh? Well, the reason I had to change Brenda was because I was on Decca Records, and that's the same label as Brenda Lee. They didn't want two Brendas. So I didn't care what they called me. <laughs> Could have called me John or Bill. Or, you know, it was just like um, uh, Loretta saw the name on uh, a, a crystal hamburger. You know, in the South, we have the crystal hamburgers. So she saw that name and she said, you know, that name's very bright and shiny and that's what you should be called. And, uh, you know, so now I'm named after hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we are talking to the one and only uh, Crystal Gale. Uh, and, Crystal, you were one of the, if not the first, crossover country stars. Uh, you know, maybe not too big of a stretch to say the Taylor Swift of your day. Did country music like and understand the benefit of you finding success on the pop charts, or was that not looked upon highly back then? It really wasn't um, looked on great in the sense of, you know, we weren't trying to uh, rub shoulders, I don't think country <laughs> or the pop, but um, it, I received so many letters from people telling me that my music opened them up to country music and they loved country music. So, you know, I feel like we helped enlarge our audience. And Kenny Rogers is, is another one. And coming from the pop direction, Olivia Newton-John. Mm. I mean, she she crossed over into country. Crystal, you're one of those people, too. Your look is almost as beautiful as your voice, if not more so. And I think one time you were voted one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. You're still beautiful now in your 60s. i got to ask you, as a guy who's lost all of his, do you still have your hair? <laughs> I do still have quite a bit of my hair. I've cut some back. but uh, And I thinned it because it's heavy through the years, and it calls, would cause headaches. But uh, in our family, you know, we are part Cherokee. Our American Indian heritage is very important to us. But I always attribute being able to grow long hair to my Indian heritage. Well, Crystal Gale has got this exhibit now in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Crystal Gale, When I Dream. Some really, really priceless stuff in there. i got to ask you, you've got an exhibit in the Country Music Hall of Fame, but you yourself are not yet in it. What? Why not? Yeah, that's a (laughs) no-brainer. What's the problem there? Well, I'm not going to push them. <laughs> who, who do we need to call? <laughs> you know, I think there is a committee. You know, there's so many deserving artists to actually be in the Hall of Fame. And there's some, you know, that they probably don't have room to put everybody in it. But um, we love the Hall of Fame. I, I find nowadays that, that since country music is changing drastically, that having the Hall of Fame, it can let people come to Nashville and see what really started it all mm. and what it was all about. So tell us about this exhibit, Crystal. What do you have uh, for people to see? Oh, we have a little of everything. <laughs> <laughs> my very first expensive dress is in there that my mother bought me. Uh, we was going to the, to the Academy of Country Music, and she said I had to have a nice dress. So I think it was a little over $100. We got a at Lily Rubin. Mm. <laughs> so I hung on to that. It was one of my favorites. And, of course, I've got hand-me-downs from Loretta in there where she would, you know, she didn't wear clothes, so she gave it to us to wear. Uh, and just, you know, awards, just personal things that um, uh, you wouldn't expect to see in there. I made my mother a little cat when, in second grade, and she kept it all those years, and uh, I have that in there. You know, when I was going through um, putting everything together for the exhibit, I, I was like, wow, I did this, this, this. Uh, and I, It's like through the years, you, you don't really think about what you're doing. But after I got everything together, I said, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> and the greatest thing about you, Crystal, is, is that it's not all in the past. You are still touring. You're still in the studio. And in fact, uh, one of your sons is in the, in the business and in the studio with you as well, right? My son, Chris, and he is, he went to Belmont, and he is, is great in the studio. He went into the engineering and to um, the business part of it, but he also writes and uh, producing his own things, and uh, he's very talented. And Crystal, through your career, you've seen all kinds of highs, you know, and there's ebbs and flows to everybody's career. 
What would you say that we can learn? What's the takeaway from Crystal Gale's life? What can you tell us about life from the cool things you've seen? Oh, it's it's always been hard for me to talk about my career, about me being in music. I was someone, and still am in the way, that uh, I never pushed. I never set these huge goals, and people constantly have goals, and they're heading for them. But I, I was just lucky to have great people around me, wonderful people that make up all these artists that you hear on radio. And um, I just hope that they, they come away with... Uh, uh, loving my music, you know, like you know, thinking that I did make some good music, and uh, just a good person, really. I'm in love, Mark. <laughs> you know, I am too. You can you can hear it in her voice. You know, yeah, still has a passion for life. Uh, very easy to talk to, Crystal Gale. Thank you so much. And folks, if you can make it to the Country Music Hall of Fame, you really should. And check out the special exhibit there, Crystal Gale. When I Dream, one of the greatest performers in the history and then of country music. Ask the guy standing there why she's not a member. Yeah, let's uh, let's why make a she, let's yes. make a phone call right now. Let's start that, Mark. Let's do that. Hey, Crystal, thanks so much. Coming up next, is there a week in your life that's worthy of a book? Well, there is in Jeff Farrell's, and he's finally written it. Inspiration of Olympic Proportion, next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder. I know you're excited about our next guest. He's an Olympic champion, a member of the International Swimming Hall of Fame, and a multi-world record-holding master swimmer. Yeah, and you know what? He is not done doing cool stuff because he is the author of a new book. It's called My Olympic Story, Rome 1960, that relives a 10-day period in 1960, 10 days that make up one of the most amazing stories in Olympic history. Welcome the fastest over 75-year-old swimmer who has ever graced the planet Earth, author Jeff Farrell. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Hi, Bill. Thanks very much. I'm fine. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. How does it sound uh, to to hear you introduced as author uh, instead of just great swimmer now? Well, it actually makes me quite proud. I'm just delighted that my book is uh, uh, receiving such uh, good reviews, and it doesn't mean it will be an instant bestseller, but I'm I'm uh, happy it was a challenging and very satisfying couple of years of work. You know, it's a fabulous read, folks, and, and let me just help you set it up real quickly so we can get to right to, the, uh, right to the meat of it. And as I've told you before, Jeff, I was actually in Detroit for the 1960 Olympic trials. I was 10 years old. I came to see you and Steve Clark and Lance Larson and, and, and Mike Troy, and little did I or anybody know what was about to unfold because you had just set the American record. You were the world's fastest sprinter, thought to be a shoe-in for gold uh, in the Olympics, and then just six days before the trials, something tragic happened. What happened? I was staying in a motel with my coach and a couple of swimmers from the Yale that we'd been training together up in New Haven, and uh, I woke up about 4 o'clock in the morning with a serious stomach pain, ab- abdominal. I went into the bathroom, passed out, and when I passed out, I woke up the guys in the room. And even Kippeth, who, my coach who was in the room below us, he heard me fall. So uh, when I came back uh, conscious, my coach was there, and he said, where does it hurt? And I pointed, and he said, okay, got to get you to the hospital. And he knew that it was an appendix problem because of the pain and the location. And, Jeff, that was a huge deal because this was your chance to qualify for the team. Right. This was just about three days 
after I had won a couple of national titles in, in Toledo, Toledo and six days before my first 100 race in the Olympic trials. So it was a critical time. Now, there's so much more to this story, and I don't want to be the one to do this because Mark, Mark is the one who told me about what happened with you, Jeff, and he tells it with such reverence and amazement and affection for the selfless act that you did. You know, I'd, I'd much rather, Mark, let you talk him through it. <laughs> well, there are a lot of points to it. I You're going to have to read the whole book to find it. But, but you know, back then, having an appendectomy was not an easy thing. I mean, it was major surgery. Uh, you were six days from the trial. First of all, Jeff, how long did doctors tell you it was going to take you to recover from this surgery to the extent that you could actually get on a starting block and race? Well, I remember lying on a gurney or something in the out, just outside the uh, operating room and asking my surgeon uh, how long it would be before I would be able to swim. And his immediate response was uh, about six weeks. Uh, and I don't think that he was thinking the same sw- about swimming in the same way that I was, uh, although he did know that I was a serious competitive swimmer. So six weeks instead of six days, you you mentioned your coach Kipleth. He actually was an expert on anatomy and advised the doctors on how to cut into you. Uh, he probably had an idea in mind because the day after the surgery, he suggested you start to move around a little bit. And then the next day, he told you there's actually a pool in the basement of the hospital, right? That's right. Um, I had, and at that time, although it may have his, been his plan all along, I don't know uh, because I, I never really asked him about this, but uh, given the instructions he gave to the surgeon, given the speed with which he wanted me to start exercising again, uh, I just can't help but think that he had in mind that I might be able to make a fast comeback. All right, so I want to advance the story here because we're down to the last couple of minutes, and, and I want to get get kind of to the takeaway of this thing here. So while this is going on, you don't think you can swim. The doctors tell you you can't swim. The U.S. Olympic Committee is meeting passionately to try to figure out a way they can essentially break the rules so that Jeff Farrell can swim in the Olympics. They offer you a time trial weeks later after you've recovered, whereby if you can beat uh, a particular time from the Olympic trials, they'll let you swim in the Olympics, and you tell them, Thanks, but no thanks, right? That's right. Uh, they, the, uh, tr- the time trial that they were offering would have taken place, uh, I think, just under two weeks uh, from that day uh, when it was the last time that they could uh, tell the uh, Olympic organizers who was going to be competing and... and uh, they would have had me race against the sixth fastest qualifier for the relay. Um, And for a couple of reasons, I rejected it. Uh, uh, The first time, I had to think about it a little bit. The second time they came back a few days later, uh, I rejected it out of hand because, uh, one, it wouldn't be fair to the sixth fastest swimmer who made the team at the trials to lose his spot on the team a week or 10 days later. And also, I really wanted to swim in the 100, and I would not have been able to swim in the 100 if I had not uh, made my, gotten my, that place at the trials in Detroit in the 100. So essentially, you say no to what would have been a free pass because you say, I'm going to swim. And, and folks, he did. Six days after this acute appendicitis, his torso wrapped in surgical bandages, unable to do a, a proper dive, unable to do a proper turn. He races in both the 100 and the 200, uh, does not get the first or second qualifying space, although he should have gotten both of them had he been healthy. But he performed well enough to go to Rome and swim on both Olympics, where he anchored both the 400 and the 800-meter freestyle relays, two world records. And, Jeff, your splits on both of those relays would have won the gold. Is that right? That's right. Of course, splits don't count. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I was even in Rome, I was the fastest swimmer uh, there. 
Well, you know what? I I hate to, to take so much of the story from you, but we are running out of time. And, and I really want to encourage people to get your book. It's called My Olympic Story, Rome 1960. And folks, not only does it detail the these amazing 10 days. It really is almost a historical look at the golden age of swimming because Jeff continues to dip back into the backstory, brings up the biggest names in the sport, the biggest races in the sport. It's a fascinating read. And Jeff, how can people get a hold of a copy? Uh, They can get it on Amazon. They can uh, look me up at Vintage Team Press and buy it directly from me, Vintage Team Press. And it's going to be in local bookstores, I hope. I just got a very good review from Kirkus Reviews, and I'm hopeful it's going to get in a lot of bookstores in the country. That's great. And our mutual friend, Rowdy Gaines, loved it as well. Jeff Farrell, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you again. Coming up, we swim in a sea of inspirational stories, but this one had even us scratching our heads and wondering, how is it possible? That's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. If you're listening to your radio saying to yourself, wow, what an awesome show. That's because you're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. With the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. You know, this story really is one of the most amazing we've heard ever. Kim Goodsell started noticing physical ailments about 20 years ago when she was in her 30s. She was training for an Ironman triathlon. Eventually, she was diagnosed with two rare, very serious diseases that all of the top doctors in the country told her were not connected. It was simply bad luck. And that's where this story does get even more unusual. Let's find out more as we welcome Kim Goodsell. Hey, Kim, how are you? Very good. Thank you. All right, let's get right to it. You were first diagnosed with a heart condition, had a defibrillator implanted, years later diagnosed with a rare and progressive degenerative muscle disease. Your doctor said uh, that the two were not related, and you did not believe that, did you? No, I didn't. I actually wasn't told they weren't related. It was just completely disregarded when I had my um, neurology consult. And I went back and I read the record and I looked at his clinical notes, and there was no mention whatsoever, although, you know, I had been diagnosed with a rare cardiomyopathy for seven years at that point. And there was no mention of that in his um, summary, his clinic summary. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. How could they not be related? I've got two extremely rare diseases. And the body's a system. It's got to be connected. And that's kind of what made me delve into the research. And when you delved in, you delved in head first, didn't you? You Googled, you read, you researched, you found, you believed that a single gene was causing both issues, LMNA. What, what, what is all that? Well, that's a particular gene. As you know, we've got close to 25,000 genes. And um, it, what kind of made me, gave me the, uh, maybe the entry into looking at the different genes was that, you know, now all of a sudden, I knew ARVC, which is my cardiomyopathy, was associated with um, a genetic dis- disposition. But I thought, you know, that it's not connected with the, with the neurological aspect, and so this is something different. So it provided kind of a narrowing down. So I, I went and I looked at that particular disease, the, the nerve disease that I had, and it's associated with 40 different genes that are known to be associated with it. And I just started looking at each and every one of those genes and what kind of symptoms, um, when you have a mutation in that gene, what kind of symptoms do they produce? And Lo and behold, I found one, which is the LMNA, uh, that kind of was an umbrella over all my symptoms. And it even included the cardiomyopathy, although it wasn't under the particular diagnosis that I had. 
but it was often a cardiomyopathy that's often mistaken for the the one that I have. So I thought, well, maybe I've been misdiagnosed all these years, and I have a different kind of cardiomyopathy. So I, you know, that was enough to make me place my bets and have that particular gene sequenced. Folks, uh, are you getting the idea? This is not your normal patient. She's not a doctor. She's not a researcher. She is just someone that is curious. Uh, and obviously, we're never more curious when our, than when our own life is on the line. She did private genomic testing. Uh, she became a genetic researcher. Uh, and, and what she found out was, in fact, that there was a link between these two conditions. And, and that enabled you then to figure out how you could cure them, correct? Well, you know, I can't cure it because it is a genetic um, mutation and it's congenital, but I certainly have been wildly successful at managing it. And, um, you know, with scientific evidence, I've uh, developed a, a strategy that has worked, and it's not only um, attenuated or slowed down my neurological debilitation, but it's actually reversed it. And so today, in 2010, I had to use a walker. Um, today, I'm running on the beach and I'm kiteboarding and you know holding a lot of power out of a kite and, and sailing and and so I'm back to pretty much normal. But I definitely have you know challenges and I have to be very strict on a diet. But the the, the point is, is that through the information, you know, information is power and self information about the self is self-empowerment. And I think we can, you know, what is, is really important, I think, for all your listeners and how what I really feel is that it's not so much that I did something extraordinary. I'll admit, and I, I have a lot of, I fight this a lot because I'm very often I'm dismissed as an outlier, you know, somebody who is doing something extraordinary. And although that's maybe personally empowering, I find it very socially disempowering because what I did is accessible for everybody today. We are living in a digital information age, and there's a democratization of information. And whatever symptoms you have, you can get on the Internet, and you can delve into any level that you want to. And, and we, we have so many tools at our disposal to you know, really seize that moment and seize that opportunity and discover ourselves. But Kim, you've, you've got to get your doctors to work with you, and I would guess that there are probab probably just as many that love you and others that would say they hate you for, for doing all this research. Leave it up to us. Well, and you know, that's really what I'm doing today. I'm really trying to bring the industry, the physicians, the regulatory system, the policy leaders, um, bring the voice of the patient to these people who are curating the outcomes of this whole digital revolution that's occurring in medicine. And what's happening is the patient is gaining control or at least the ability to gain control, and they're gaining the tools to drive their medical, their health care. And it's, it's in a, a watershed moment in medicine. And, of course, there is pushback because the old school, you know, there's a paternal, you know, there's a paternalism um, that exists in our relationships with our medical um, health care providers, and um, we need to partner up with them. And that will take the patient, and it will also take the physicians to, you know, accept that as a reality today, because we as a patient are in the best possible position to assess all of our nuances, you know, all those symptoms. They have 10 minutes to look at you. You know, they, they can't possibly um, spend the time that you could researching your own condition. And with their partner, with a partnership, with a collaboration with your physician, you can go so far. I mean, I worked with Mayo physicians and it was, they were great partners and they gave me all the information I needed. I had information about my lab tests, every clinical you know, result and summary that was written about me, and I just combed through it, and I spent a lot of time connecting the not dots, but I had the time. I couldn't expect, you know, my physicians to have that kind of engagement <laughs> that I have. 
Well, folks, it is a valuable lesson, and, and we do have to caution, Kim, and I know you agree with this. There is a lot of very pertinent, sal- uh, salient, important information on the Internet. There is also some misinformation. So, folks, you have to be careful. But the point is you do have the ability to do research, to interpret your own symptoms, ask some tough questions, ultimately take a very active part in your own health care. She is Kim Goodsell. Kim, congratulations, and please keep up the great work. And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingboulder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Stay.